1: Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Tanya Storch about her new book, The History of Chinese Buddhist Bibliography, Censorship and Transformation of the Tripitaka, published by Cambria Press in 2014. This book focuses on the development of Chinese Buddhist catalogs from their first appearance in the 3rd century to the 8th century, when printed editions of the canon took over the catalog's role of identifying and delimiting the Chinese Buddhist canon. Storch has written this work with two goals in mind, which correspond to two different audiences she is targeting. On the one hand, she aims to present the first ever English language overview of Chinese Buddhist bibliography, a feat she accomplishes through an examination of catalogues in their chronological order of appearance. Along the way, she highlights a number of important points and developments. The way in which Sengyo was indebted to earlier catalogues other than Daoans. Buddhist appropriation of the organizing principles used in catalogs of Confucian texts, the unprecedented production of catalogs of Buddhist texts during the short-lived Sui dynasty, the growth of the sutra section of the canon and simultaneous shrinking of the Vinaya section, and the reasons for the eventual decline of the catalog's authority, to name but a few of the issues that Storch addresses. The extraordinary number of names and people, Names of people and texts appearing in these chapters would be overwhelming for readers not prepared for such detail, were it not for the tables that Storch has thoughtfully included at the end of each chapter, in which she lays out the contents and structure of the various catalogs discussed therein. This is in addition to a very helpful 17-page table appended to the end of the book that provides, in table format, an overview of the first five centuries of Chinese Buddhist bibliography. Storch's second goal is to make Chinese Buddhist bibliography accessible to non-specialists. Because discussions of the Chinese Buddhist canon are written in Japanese or Chinese, or, if in a Western language, they are written for other sinologists or scholars of Chinese Buddhism, the Chinese Buddhist canon has been consistently absent from academic treatments of canon formation and sacred scripture in comparative perspective. Incidentally, scholarship on the corpus of Confucian classics has been more accessible, and thus this body of text has not suffered the same fate. Lamenting this fact, Storch hopes to make the Chinese Tripitaka a household name. To this end, she devotes Chapter 7 to a comparison of the Chinese canon and Chinese Buddhist canonical authority to the development of the New Testament and Hellenistic catalogs of texts. She considers, for example, the way in which both Chinese catalogers and those attempting to delimit the boundaries of the New Testament both attempted to verify the authenticity of a given text by verifying the authenticity of the transmitter of that text the transmitter being the translator in the case of Chinese Buddhism and the apostle in the case of the New Testament. In this way, Storch's book will be of great value value not only to those attempting to understand the notions of canon, orthodoxy, and religious authority in the context of Chinese Buddhism and Chinese textual culture more generally, but also to to those examining these concepts in cross-cultural perspective, particularly with regard to past evaluations of sacred scripture and corpora of such texts. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm with Tanya Storch, Associate Professor of Religious and Classical Studies at the University of the Pacific, and we're going to be talking about her recent book, The History of Chinese Buddhist Bibliography, Censorship and Transformation of the Tripitaka, published by Cambria Press in 2014. Tanya Storch, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
2: Well, thank you, Luke, for inviting me to this show. So I
1: wonder if you could begin the interview just by telling us um, a bit about yourself, where you're from, and um, how you came to the study of China, of Buddhism, of Chinese Buddhism.
2: Well, I was born, and my initial training as a Sinologist and Buddhologist actually started in the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. the real old Soviet Union before it collapsed. Yes, and uh, while I received, uh, for free, perfect education, could study Sanskrit, Tibetan, Pali, uh, you name it, uh, the ideological reasons were given to me for not approving the final text of my dissertation. Mm. And that was the last straw. That's why I decided to um, leave the Soviet Union behind and come to the United States of America. And I was lucky to be enrolled in a doctoral program at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, So my American mentor is uh, none other but a famous Victor Mayer, Mm. to whom I'm tremendously grateful. Uh, He always does uh, so much for his students, never allowing them to fall through the cracks. So as I was already with um, children and a husband, he Mm. made it possible for me to work on the doctoral program, to get all the classes, to write the dissertation. And he was also the one who um, guided me to that topic of the Chinese Buddhist bibliography.
0: Mm, I
1: see. So, yeah, that actually um, brings us to the second question, which was, which was, how did you come to focus specifically on Chinese bi- Buddhist bibliography? Was it lo- largely through his, uh, Victor Mayer's guidance then?
2: It start a little bit with the um, previous mentor in Russia, Leo Menshikov, uh, who was the keeper of the Dunhuang Collection in the uh, Institute of Eastern Manuscripts mm-hmm. uh, in St. Petersburg, but in real seriousness uh, and at the PhD level, right? Um, yeah. This is, of course, uh, Victor uh, H. Mayer, who helped me. And then as I got on the topic, I um, quickly put down... Uh, Maybe five, <laughs> and I'm going to go over them very, very briefly. Reasons why the Chinese Buddhist bibliography is, in fact, a crucial topic for us to understand. So, the number one is the dynastic um, book catalogs,
0: mm-hmm. believe
2: it or not, and that almost nobody knows. They refused, and we're talking about dynastic book mm-hmm. catalogs, right? Uh, there were others, but dynastic book catalogs refused to include information about the Chinese Buddhist Chipitaka. Mm-hmm. The only exception is the Sui Shu, or the um, book of the Sui Dynasty, where we have the Jin Jin written by famous Tang Telga Jang Ji. But even in that ac- exception from the rule, the entirety of the Buddhist collection of scriptures, uh, which by then was more than a couple of thousand, was introduced only by count. Mm. Uh, that many hundred texts in Mahayana, that many hundred texts in small vehicle, that many hundred or dozens. Uh, um, uh, sorry, dozens of texts in the Vinaya tradition, so on and so forth. So uh, that was one uh, important uh, moment for me to say, hey, unless the Buddhists created their own cataloging tradition, their own bibliography, science of bibliography comparable to the Confucian, they could never hope uh, to be established in the dynastic Chronicles
0: mm-hmm.
2: because so- their catalogs were included, but, uh, but the texts were not.
1: I see. So, 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 imperially sanctioned book catalogues themselves throughout Chinese history, besides the sea, themselves, have basically completely ignored uh, Buddhist texts.
2: That's right. Okay. That's right. So that would that would include texts written by Chinese Buddhists directly in Chinese language, such mm-hmm. as book catalogues, such as biographies, such as descriptions of the uh, Buddhist countries, uh, commentaries, sometimes, etc. But as far as the translations from Central Asians and Sanskrit go, they were not accounted in the traditional catalogs. And therefore, by writing Buddhist catalogs, Buddhists were living their mark in the official bibliographic collection or bibliographic science of, of China. So that mm. is what I was at UPenn and was very proud of that. Yes, so, And um, moving quickly to the second point, uh, why why, why uh, Chinese Buddhist bibliography is such a huge um, topic, is that the truthfulness of Buddhist teachings in China has to be verified uh, by the rules of traditional Confucian bibliography. And very few people understand that, uh, because when we uh, study Central Asian Buddhism, or Buddhism in India, or Buddhism in Sri Lanka, uh, we have a different criteria of the truthfulness of the doctrines, and I'm not going to go in depth with that, Um, uh, yet one main mechanism of that was oral recitation. Uh, To this day, if you uh, are in uh, Myanmar, for example, um, uh, and you're in the Academy for Buddhist uh, Monks, to this day, they recite uh, word by word from the teacher uh, the text of most important Buddhist collections. Mm. Uh, In China, two things made this impossible. First, Chinese did not learn the languages of Buddhism until much, much later. Um, second, there were several languages of Buddhism, not just one, so which one to learn. <laughs> and third, uh, based on the Chinese traditional culture, the truth uh, already was accepted as a written text, specifically Confucian classics, so something said orally could never have the same cultural significance as the uh, written text. Uh, for that reason, the emphasis had to switch from oral transi- transmission to the written transmission, and I, I wrote about that um, in the Sinoplatonic uh, uh, papers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah um, that uh, orality was uh, then turned into historiography and written transmission, and that's important uh, to understand. And a few other authors, natier and um, Dan Boucher, and, of course, uh, Eric Surher, mm-hmm. quite a number of sinologists, uh
1: Attention to this. I see. Yeah. So, 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 so you're saying previous scholars have basically ignored the fact that uh, that um, Buddhist uh, catalog compilers in China had to um, use the same the criteria had to establish the authenticity of text by using criteria that uh, were not determined by the Buddhist tradition, but rather by uh, uh, sort of native Chinese Confucian
2: uh, exactly. catalogs. Exactly, yeah. exactly. They had to use the criteria designed by Confucian scholars, and there was no any other uh, way around it, because the same Confucian scholars doubted the existence of the Buddha. Mm. Uh, when we look into the collection of um, uh, apologetic literature, the Hu uh, in um, Chinese Uh, question after question is about did Buddha exist? Oh, nobody can prove Buddha existed. If Buddha (laughs) never existed why would we learn his uh, teachings?
0: Um,
2: And of course the only uh, records that the Chinese Buddhists could provide were the records written by themselves and therefore the incredible significance of uh, Buddhist historiography including the book catalogs that proved just like for Confucian books, classics, there was this lineage of transmission and so for Buddhist classics of Buddhist books. There was this lynch of transmission. And that, of course, entirely transformed the Buddhist tradition and transformed the Buddhist doctrine uh, uh, once it uh, was accepted in China. I see. Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, so I want to go... Um, I want to go do, were, did, sorry, did you mention that there were five things that you wanted to mention? Yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you're very politely waiting out. I will go with them very, very quickly, because At number three comes a very particular um, uh, hocus pocus or optical illusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, once the Chinese Buddhist scholars uh, understood that the Buddhist classics uh, are the way to go, they also understood, just somehow made it up in their mind, that somewhere in northern India and Central Asia, there must exist, must have pre-existed um, before the transmission process started, a collection similar to the Chinese collection of Confucian classics. In other words, they were uh, without a doubt convinced of that there is a set, organized collection of written classics for Buddhism, just as there was a set, organized, and centralized written collection of Confucian classics. Mm. And we have to only thank them for that illusion, because that forced them to um, uh, get a little piece of oral transmission and write it down. It also uh, turned the wheels of history the other way around. So Central Asia and Northern India uh, emphasized the oral transmission, although some written texts were already appearing in the Mahayana. We have to look at Gregory Chopin's study for that. But Chinese were searching for manuscripts
0: Mm. so
2: fanatically that in the Gansu corridor and in other parts you know, of the um, Silk Road transmission, fake Buddhist manuscripts were sold for quite a good amount of money. And mm-hmm. that is an additional stimulus for the creation of bibliography in Chinese Buddhism because they wanted to know what is fake, what is real. Mm-hmm. And in order for these fake manuscripts to be produced, there must be high demand, and that demand was coming from Chinese. Yeah, uh, because in uh, once again in Khotan or Kucha or Parthia, they were happy with their oral uh, transmission; did not really need to commit it to writing. Mm. Yes. So, so, so,
1: so this—I'm yeah. sorry. So this rise in the production of forgeries was basically a response to the Chinese idea and the Chinese search for some sort of textual original of this, like, of these Buddhist classics, then.
2: Look, and when we say textual, we must be very, very careful. Uh, Written, right? Written, sorry, written, right. Yes, yes. that has to be underscored with three very thick lines. Right. Chinese search for manuscripts. I see, right. Uh, That's why when finally Xuanzang and the Tang Dynasty went and came back with a whole bunch of manuscripts. Mm. That's why he was glorified as the main transmitter, although his translations were almost like not necessary. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) Because most of the important Mahayana texts were already translated and uh, digested, so to speak, and made properly Chinese and so on, so forth. Yeah. Yes. So search for the manuscripts resulted. It's market economy uh, everywhere. Uh, so it was with Buddhism. So the demand created the production. Um, and uh, that Uh, on one hand, backfired uh, because the Chinese did not know uh, that they were maybe sometimes the first writers of certain Buddhist texts (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they would put them down with all the commentaries, uh, with all the variations. So they were creators um, maybe more than translators, especially during the first five centuries of the uh, transmission of the Dharma Mm -hmm. from the West to China. But uh, as it backfired um, in this kind of sense that the Chinese had to write many, 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 many texts. Uh, It's also a tremendous benefit uh, and um, uh, first Asian, East Asian civilization and now the global civilization benefit from that Chinese created this collection of all things uh, that came to them from uh, the West, including some texts of uh, Indian philosophical schools, Mm. including some Manichaean texts, etc. So everything that came from the West had to be committed to writing and that would become immediately a Buddhist classic.
0: Mm. Okay,
2: and there are two more reasons uh, so that then you can kind of uh, go all over why why, why the Buddhist bibliography um, grabbed my heart, my mind, my attention, why I spent so many years studying and then writing the book about uh, We have to either blame Chinese or thank Chinese for the creation of the notion of a particular type of Mahayana. Mm. Uh, and you can understand only when you look at all the uh, entirety of the catalogs, right? So the entire panoramic view of Buddhist bibliography gives you that sense. They did not know what was the Theravada, Mahayana, what exactly was that uh, term that they coined, Hinayana or Cheng, the small vehicle. All these texts in the context of Central Asian and Indian Buddhism uh, does not correspond or do not correspond to what the Chinese created. In other words, uh, using the term of Lai uh, an outstanding scholar who was my neighbor at the UC Davis, uh, Semitic Mahayana became uh, Mahayana par excellence in uh, East Asia. Mm. And from the study of bibliography, you see. And the very, very last one, that the Chinese also are responsible for changing the, um, the shape or uh, the structure of the uh, Buddhist canon of, of the Tripitaka. In India, in Central Asia, you have uh, disciplinarian uh, rules first, known as the Vinaya, what monks and nuns have to do in order to um, follow uh, the path and in order to join the Zanga. But because the Chinese people translated all the Buddhist texts in the beginning as Jing or Classics, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
2: when later Jing came to specify, or Kyo in Japanese, when later that came to specify uh, sutra uh, type of the text, right? Sutra, the stories about the Buddha and his previous life. Then the sutra collection has to take place, number one, because uh, of its tremendous importance and also uh, connection to the classics of Confucianism. And then they put Vinaya, the disciplinarian code, at number two, which, once again, everywhere else in the world except for the Chinese, Mahayanistic <laughs> canon influence world. Mm. Uh, so a became number two, and the last uh, and later added uh, collection, of the Abhidharma, the third basket, then remained number three as it was.
0: I see. So,
2: so these these things were actually big shock to me because it was not known, it was not discussed, and that's why I said, okay, I have I have to do that.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and mm-hmm. I guess all five, five of those points are, you know, central to... Uh, mm-hmm. Sort of, I guess, the character of Chinese Buddhism and its development. But um, so, um, so the so, so the book comprises seven chapters, and um, right. and I should also mention, listeners, there's an appendix uh, as an appendix. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a seventeen mm-hmm. page table of Chinese Buddhist scriptural catalogs from the third to eighth centuries, which will be uh, very useful for um, anyone interested in um, Chinese Buddhist bibliography. But uh, more generally, the book consists of two parts, one being uh, right. chapters 1, 6, and 7, and the other being chapters uh, 2 to 5. And these two sort of parts of the book correspond to your two primary goals. So I was wondering if you could just mention these um, what these goals are, or these two halves of the book.
2: Right, right, right. So in addition to those, I'm almost like the Abhidharma teacher myself, right? I'm giving things in a number points. <laughs> <laughs> so the first five that I uh, worked so hard to represent to my listener, and I apologize if I wasn't quite clear on everything, no, no. therefore they have to buy the book, right? Yeah. Uh, but so this, this big, biggie five were my inspiration. Mm-hmm. But when I was packaging uh, everything, I thought, okay. So first, I'm going to give a panoramic view of the development of Chinese Buddhist bibliography, taking it from the earliest catalog all the way until the um, uh, printed edition, until the printing, uh, block printing was invented in China, and therefore the Chinese start printing the whole collection. Uh, Then the catalogs start playing a distinctly different role, but the printed edition starts playing the role of the um, earliest um, catalogs so that is uh, the most useful part for specialists in the history of China, Chinese Buddhism, or in the history of Buddhism anywhere else.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: that is to serve my own folks, the Sino-Buddhological uh, or Japanological Buddhological or Tibetan Buddhological um, uh, scholars. Uh, the second part uh, that is uh, carefully and I hope wisely spread out in chapters 1, 6, and 7 is to bring Tripitaka. the table of comparative scriptural analysis
0: Mm.
2: in my book I mention I think maybe 15 uh, monographs uh, on comparative study of world religions none of them brings in the Chinese Buddhist canon to the table, none of them compares uh, Chinese Buddhist canon to uh, say Guru Granth Sahib of Sikhism or to the Tipitaka of Sri Lanka or to the New Testament, or to the Quran, and in my view and in my experience, this is due to the fact that we ourselves, we sinological Buddhologists, uh, don't like to look at generalizations that they can um, make uh, understood to uh, other uh, scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I go to the uh, American Academy of Religion conference, I try to talk to as many specialists in uh, Christian canon
0: mm-hmm. or
2: islamic canon and every time uh i share my findings with them they say where can we read about that well it's in the past and i would say well i'm afraid nowhere (laughs) because because we sinological buddhologists we don't like to chew things up we don't like to simplify them we don't like to generalize Mm -hmm. Uh, and without that um our colleagues from different fields cannot understand what we're talking about yeah that is, that is the second part to bring comparison to Confucian classics, because the Confucian Canon uh, is included in these comparative studies. I see. Uh, but the Chinese Buddhist is not. And then comparing to the New Testament, because once again, of course Christian canon is included in each and every study, and that gives us the language of uh, bringing the language of bridges, um, uh, helping canons, the language of helping canons to talk to each other, where the Chinese Buddhist canon will be also one of, one of the speakers. In the
0: conversation, yeah, I, I, I'd,
1: I'd be uh, I'd be interested to know why scholars writing in Western languages um, about Confucian classics and sort of uh, the structuring of uh, mm-hmm. the Confucian sort of written corpus um, mm-hmm. have written more that is accessible to non-specialists than. Uh, uh, scholars work on Chinese Buddhism, but anyway, that question might take us a little
2: That t- yes, off that's topic. yes, that will take But but that's so it is. So the Confucian canon and the scholars in the Confucian canon made their presentations, writings, uh, the research available and more widely understood and as far as the Chinese Buddhist canon is concerned, it has not been done yet. So, I see. Um, I, I, I know I have not done it well enough, uh, because it's basically the, the, fir- the first time that this has been included into the... Well, there were, there were um, um, once again, uh, one in life, whom I already mentioned, and Koichi Shinohara. they wrote a few papers inviting this kind of comparison, but uh, this, this plant kind of died out because it wasn't watered and wasn't favored.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: So bringing comparison to other scriptural canons, I think, is a very useful thing to do from now on. Sure. hmm Okay, so mo-
1: moving on into the uh, main body of the te- of the uh,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: of the of the written text here, uh, mm-hmm. the um, in 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 chapter one you look at uh, traditional non Buddhist Chinese catalogs and right. at how Confucian catalogs influenced the way in which the Buddhist canon was organized in the Chinese right. context, um, and you. Um, You begin with the two earliest bibliographies about which we have substantial information, Liu uh, Xiang's uh, subject catalogue and Liu Xin's uh, seven epitomes. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I was wondering if you could, um, without going into too much detail, just tell me what these two are, and also, or tell our listeners what these two are, and what they tell us about book cataloguing in this early stage of Chinese bibliography. Or if you want to uh, simplify more, you could, I mean, also in this chapter, you sort of um you um I think you sort of boil it down to three fundamental historiographical principles that were borrowed by Buddhists from Confucians in terms of uh, cataloging
2: right, but before um I go to the three principles which would be probably the most um uh quintessentially important thing. Uh, let me answer why uh, uh, Luhan and Xin, the two uh, uh Lu the um father and son. Uh, during the Han Dynasty? Well, first of all, because they are the earliest surviving catalogs of non-Buddhist literature in China. Mm -hmm. So I decided to look at the very beginning of Confucian tradition once I realized that Buddhists tried to be like Confucians and they had to compete with Confucians in order to have their literature represented with the dynastic historiographical uh, collections. Uh, Second is that I realized that even the Confucian example was not the kind of bibliography we would uh, expect it to be. In other words, there was no objectivity in what they were writing. Uh, their goal was already to defend a specific transmission of Confucian classics. Let's remember that Xin Shihuangdi burned quite a few of those texts, so they had to reconstruct them from nothing. So uh, especially Lu Xin, uh, a proponent of the so-called old text school, certain transmissions of the classics he declared to be the most reliable ones because they come from the most reliable transmitters. And that was important to me because uh, there is still a view that the earliest surviving uh, Buddhist catalogs, such as the one written by Shish and Yeo in the early 6th century, must be an objective description of what was out there. Uh, I strongly disagree. Uh, I know I'm not very popular here yet. I'm waiting, <laughs> I'm waiting for more people getting <laughs> getting on board with this position. Sun Yu, very much like Lu Xin, was an ideological bibliographer. He simply used bibliography as a very smart weapon, as a um, historiographical tool to defend those scriptures which he considered to be crucial for dissemination of the type of Confucianism in the case of Lu xin or for the type of Buddhism, in the case of Xiang that she personally favored.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: these two things. So these are the earliest Confucian catalogs, and also it's already clear at that point that the cataloging was an ideological business. It was not just our alphabetical catalogs where, um, you know, books uh, written with a title that starts with letter A, are no better than books that start with a title, uh the title that starts with letter B, right? right. <laughs> so our catalog our, our bibliography well bibliography may be the one at the end of the book. Yes, it's it's uh, it's it is representative of what we learn and what we use, but uh, regular catalog have no such ideological um, implications. Yet in China, catalogs were ideological from the earliest samples that we have. And uh, Lu Shang and Lu Xin's business here are very, um, how would I say it, uh, very well-proven cases. There you go. I very see. well-proven. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, in following this, you also discuss Bangu's uh, monograph on arts mm-hmm. and writings, which um, has another feature um, in its organization that it comes to be central in later Buddhist bibliography, um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could mention that as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I realized that uh, as you asked me for the three principles that uh, uh, Chinese uh, Buddhist bibliographers were kind of borrowing from Confucian bibliographers, and I have not given these three principles, so let me do this quickly and then move to Bangu. Mm. Uh, so basically, uh, uh, number one, that yes, they used catalog as a weapon, uh, or tool uh, device to verify authenticity of their transmitted texts, very much like Confucians did. And that uh, the power in using catalog was that the uh, connection was made between Confucius and the classics in case of Confucian bibliography, and the connection was made between uh, the specific transmitters. They could not prove it all the way to the Buddha, but they were given as Buddha's disciples, uh, very much like five. Buddhist disciples, or 500 arhats, put the collection, oral collection of uh, Buddhist texts uh, in India after the Buddhist death. So the Buddhist um, Chinese scholars were thinking about those translators as transmitters, as sacred agents who were passing this down, mimicking at the same time um, uh, transmission uh, in the Confucian catalogs. And uh, number three that they rejected as a false texts not those which they discarded on the basis of doctrinal discussion. Uh, They gently danced around this question, but if they could not prove that certain texts come from uh, a a reliable translator, that text then would be considered non-reliable. Here, however, we need to understand that the reliability of the translator must be taken with five question marks, Mm-hmm. Uh, so many texts have been ascribed to the so-called Anshigao, a famous Parthian prince who lived a life very similar to the Buddha, uh, yet the authenticity of the figure of Anshigao uh, is not and cannot be uh, proven. Antonio Forte wrote a whole big book about that, and yet it has not been resolved. So we don't know if we have a shred of historical <laughs> reliability about many early um, translators uh, in Kang Sen Hui, for example, all we know that he came to the kingdom of Wu and that he created the uh, remains of the Buddha, the Sharira, the stuff that remains after the cremation. So he was able to somehow make it so that it dropped into uh, a vase <laughs> mm. in the imperial palace, and that's all we know about him as uh, as, a, as a translator, right? <laughs> yeah. Yet, yet that would be considered to be a proof enough of that everything that came from Kang Sen Hui is the true dharma, it somehow comes directly from the Buddha, and so on and so forth. So these are three principles. Authorship, even though for us it's not historically reliable for them, it is uh, that connection between the uh, reliable transmitter and the text is a proof of doctrinal authenticity, and that it has to be done through through the catalog. So when I looked at Bangu, and I hope I'm not taking too much Face. <laughs> no. uh, and once again, Bangu is the earliest surviving catalog in the Confucian tradition.
1: Bangu being, I think, what his first century, yes? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Um, and then um, uh, we, of course, uh, have bits and pieces of Lu and Lu Xin in Bangu's own catalog. So to uh, actually, for me to have a physical text in the Confucian tradition, although some may say Bangu was not exactly in Confucian, I'm not going to go there, but it's, he's, considered, <laughs> he's mm-hmm. considered to be in that, in that transmission of the classics, right? So that's, that's uh, an argument uh, strong enough. Uh, so the earliest that I could put on my desk uh, at Upen Library, uh, right next to the earliest Buddhist one, which is by Seng Yu, mm. uh, gave me these goosebumps, and my hair stood on the end, because they use everything the same. Everything the same, even the verbiage, right? That many texts to the right, of course, Chinese write from right to the left, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that many texts in that many fascicles by such and such author, and then these texts are proven through the uh, authorship and or the transmitter, uh, as I call them, to to put them together because in Confucian tradition there's no um, translator, right? Um, so author for Confucian um, translator, so I unify them by using transmitter, and then this. Chunks of author text are then classified into bigger chunks already based on the subject of this uh, uh of the writings of these authors. So mm. all the devices, including the language of the, uh, Bangu's catalog, are still very much, uh, obvious, apparent, and present in Singu's catalog. And for me, uh, that was, uh, something that had to be, uh, featured, uh, almost immediately, since, uh, Chinese scholars in the People's Republic of China uh, today and the Chinese scholars before the uh, People's Republic of China came into being did not wish to uh, pay homage to Confucian um, bibliographical tradition and insisted on uh, that, uh, starting from Liang Qichao uh, and then going to Yao Mingda, insisted that the Buddhists were actually quite original, in how they approach this matter of cataloging their Buddhist translations. Mm. In fact, they are original in some sense, where the necessity forced them to be original, because, of course, Confucian texts are not Buddhist, and they are not the same classes of literature, right? But when it comes to um, ideological uh, goals of bibliography, what when it comes to historiographical devices, organization, by the years of life of the translators and by the dynasties, and so on and so forth. That is entirely Chinese through and through, and that's why Kyoko Tokuna called the Buddhist catalog quintessentially Chinese way of dealing with Buddhist scriptures.
1: You mean mean establishing the authenticity of a text through establishing a connection with uh, a transmitter, be it uh, the person who taught the text or the person who translated the the text through uh, linking the... the, uh, establishing the authenticity of a text through linking it with with a figure who is somehow considered authentic.
2: Right, but also doing that by the rule of Confucian historiography, right? Uh, Mm. That connection could have been made in many different ways. Uh, The Chinese Buddhist author could have said, well, you know, they were all somehow connected to the Buddha, or maybe um, they had... Revelations like it was done later um, with uh, certain texts in Tibet, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they were in the cave, you know, they were they <laughs> so and so forth. No, they had to play by the rule of Confucian historiography, and that is they had to give the dates of life for those uh, translators, right. even though they are oftentimes unreliable. They had to write brief bibliographies. They had to give a dynastic period under which they lived. They had to give the name of the emperor. And the whole grouping of this, uh, or classification of the authors, uh, and then authors into bigger dynastic chunks, is all Confucian historiography and bibliography through and through and through.
1: I see, right. Yes.
2: And how do we know that? Because uh, we have a parallel tradition of Taoism, and when Taoism started its own tradition, it did not... um, uh, bear such a heavy Confucian influence because the Daoists didn't have to fight with Confucians as, as uh, and here uh, specialists on Chinese Daoism, please please forgive me. Here I'm from something very creative, right? So because Daoism was already accepted as a non-barbarian but a properly Chinese thing, and Chinese texts were included into the dynastic catalogs, uh, we see the attempts of developing the uh, Daoist um, bibliography uh, on their own terms, but later. Uh, maybe uh, due to the success of the Buddhist catalogues, we see that even Taoist catalogues are kind of succumbing to that Confucian model, and it became became a traditional Chinese model in the end. Yes, I see. Okay. So, um, so with
1: that, uh, moving on into um, I was going to move uh, moving on into chapters two, three, four, and five, which mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, comprise almost two thirds of the book, and and which is where you provide the panoramic view of Chinese Buddhist bibliography. Um, Mm -hmm. Moving into that. um, Now, I don't want to go through all these chapters in detail because, um, because, you know, listeners I think will be lost in the various uh, names of people and texts and so forth. And so listeners, you'll have to go and pick up a copy for yourself and work your way uh, through the detail uh, at Mm -hmm. a more leisurely pace. Uh, But I did want to touch on some of the important names and works. Um, Right. And I should also add that at the end of each of these chapters, you provide a very useful tables that present the categories by which the various catalogs you discuss divide the scriptures and texts that they address. So um, that really, um, because it can be a bit confusing for uh, readers who um, aren't familiar with all the people and texts uh, involved, Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. tables are very useful. Um, So kind of combining chapter two and three into sort of one uh, topic for discussion, uh here's where you t- uh talk uh talk most about uh sang um, mm-hmm. uh 445 to 518 um mm-hmm. and um one of the Daoan. things you argue here is that uh they're sort of seen uh, he, uh his and Dao'an's catalogs are seen as the sort of earliest mm-hmm. catalogs of the chinese buddhist canon but that you say this isn't historically accurate so what are the um how is this not historically accurate
2: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, first of all, let me give you the dates for Dawan because you kind of supplied them for uh, Sanyu. Yes, sorry. uh, 445 through 518, and for Dawan, uh, 312 through 385. Well, uh, what I am saying uh, is not that uh, Dawan's text or Sanyu's text are historically inaccurate. Right. But that these two examples are the earliest ones available for us. When we discuss the history of the Chinese Buddhist bibliography, uh, the reason is uh, the same as why we cannot trust the catalog of Lu Shang uh, in terms of what are the earliest Confucian texts, right? Or what are the earliest ancient Chinese books that became Confucian classics? Since uh, Lu Shang's catalog is already uh, first, Lu Shang and then especially Lu Shang's catalog is already ideologically. Um, well, we have already a political spin. It's already ideologically twisted, <laughs> so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, Senyu's catalog is actually big, big time ideologically twisted. And so is Dawins, and that's why I think you really like Dawins catalog very much. If we look at historical data, and I even wrote it down, so you didn't want me to mention more names, but I'm going to mention just a few. Mm. If we look at those catalogs that are, without a single doubt, Predated Yo's catalog, right? The earliest extent. We talk about several different directions in the Buddhist bibliography, okay? Mm-hmm. And that uh, those directions are not necessarily consistent with how Confucian classics were described. There were Buddhist own attempts, so we have to thank um, Dawan and Yo for making Buddhist bibliographical tradition heavy Confucianized. But the earliest attempts are like this. Uh, the catalogue by Chu Hu, also known as Dharma Raksha, the famous translator from Dunhuang, his catalogue used a translator as a parameter for the reliability of the Buddhist canon. Mm. And there is a uh, very good uh, paper by Stefano Zacchetti, It is coming in a new book, um, Spreading the Buddha's Words uh, in East Asia, edited by uh, Jiang Wu and uh, Lu Jia, and my paper is there too. It's coming from Columbia University Press uh, this year, maybe just the next month. So the earliest catalog did not have Confucianized criteria for authenticity. It actually had the translator such as Dharma Raksha or Zhu Fa, Hu, as the heart for reliability or measure uh, of reliability and as the heart of authenticity, so to speak, right? That right. is one example. Another example that is very, very different, and that is actually was done in the community of Dao Wan's disciple, community of, of Huayan, who is known as the Chinese founder of the Pure Land uh, that went, then went to Japan, became very popular, the Jodo school, Pure Land school. So in the community of Huayan there was a different approach. They actually organized all translations based on the dynasties, mm. on the graphic location where the texts were produced. Uh, and that has to do first with that Gansu corridor was still the place where forgeries were created. So in that catalog written by Zhu Daozu, once again in Hu Yuan's community and blessed by Hu Yuan uh, catalog. Uh, the area where fakes were made were uh, described as a warning, warning, warning. And then the rest of the reliable text was based on the dynastic patronage to the translation process, thinking, so to speak, well, the emperor cannot go wrong, right? If the emperor approved of this uh, sutra, that must be a good sutra. We should be able to propagate it and we should be able to preach on it. Uh, Then you have another example of the direction in which before uh, um, Sanyo, the uh, uh, development of the Chinese Buddhist biography was going, was a catalog by Jimin Du. And there, he actually insisted on that Chinese own writings, such as uh, a prefaces and forewords and commentaries, have the same value in terms of them being the teaching of the Buddha as the translations made with the help of the foreigners. And finally, uh, during the Southern Song Dynasty, which is also known as the Song Dynasty, not to mix it up with the later, later, Northern and South Song, uh, we have uh, a catalog. We don't know who is the author, so we're talking about roughly 420, um, maybe 450, where the principles of Central Asian and Indic Buddhism were perfectly implemented. That is, the tax were divided in terms of them being the small vehicle, being the greater vehicle, being the teachings uh, where both smaller vehicle and greater uh, vehicle are agreeing, where the texts were divided according to them being Vinaya, Sutra, bidharma, etc., etc. So before the ideological principle of Seng Yu became triumphant in the Chinese Sangha, there were many different approaches. And as I write in my book, uh, you cannot understand the importance of Seng Yu's direction without understanding uh, what these early directions were and without um, paying homage to this earlier bibliographical tradition, we cannot understand what happened later under the Sui and Tang dynasty when these early approaches have been resurrected and then implemented in the future development of the Chinese uh, Buddhist canon or Chinese Jipitaka. So, um, I think you may want to ask a separate question on uh, Seng Yu, right? (laughs) Because I I answered by 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 saying that we think everything starts with Sengyou and right. possibly Taiwan, uh, but the answer is no, no, no. Read the history. They were bringing in a particular perspective, but that was not the only perspective mm. on the Chinese translated uh, Buddhist texts.
1: I see. Right. Uh-huh. So 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 so
0: the uh, I get,
1: uh, so the idea is that previous scholar, I mean previous scholars have sort of. Um, well, not just previous scholars, maybe the tri- Chinese Buddhist tradition itself has sort of forgotten about these previous catalogs that uh, presented slightly different uh, views and thus uh, had slightly different catalog- organizations of, uh, catal- uh, or means, uh, means of cataloging um, that these have been sort of ignored, but that we can't understand Singyu's and uh, Dao'an's uh, catalogs without understanding this previous history.
2: Right, we cannot understand without previous history, but I disagree that we, um, well, let me put it like this. Uh, Chinese and Japanese scholars, right, mm. uh, ri- written extensively on these catalogs that predated the lines and then uh, those who predated Senyos. Um but Yo of course, says there was nobody but Dawan. once again, for ideological reasons, of course, because yeah. Dawan came up with this Confucianized criteria of authenticity. But the Western scholars doubted Uh, And I would argue still doubt, so I hope my argumentation given in the book um, can change that, Uh, but the authenticity of this earlier text is doubted, because Yu is uh, uh, considered to be the most reliable, and if he says there was no uh, cataloging of Buddhist texts before him, except that one, everybody believes him, but I would suggest that what he's saying was there was no cataloging of Buddhist texts only principles which I and that consider considered to be reliable. So there were catalogs, there were descriptions, but they were not to his liking.
0: Mm. Sure.
2: They were not truly reliable because there was no um, definitive strong connection between the transmitter and the text. Yes. Okay.
1: So, um, I think in the interest of time, we, I want to move... Uh, Uh, move on from chapter 2 and 3 and even Mm -hmm. on to chapter 5. But before doing so, I did want to uh, mention, uh, ask you one thing about chapter 4, in which you focus on the Sui Dynasty, 581 to 618. Um, And you state that during this time, there was an unprecedented emerging of Buddhist imperial ideology. And Mm -hmm. uh, during this time, the state took a more active role in the process of creating uh, catalogs. I was wondering if you could uh, just mentioned sort of what happened during the Sui dynasty to bring about this change. And also uh, something else I found quite interesting in chapter four that I just wanted you to touch upon was one of the uh, unique uh, features of the catalogs of the few catalogs produced in the northern Wei dynasty uh, regarding the inclusion of comment or the placement of commentaries Chinese commentaries.
2: Right, right. I understand you want to move forward, Luke, but I have to roll back just a little bit, please. Please, allow me please, two roll back. Uh, this is once again has to do with Sun yes, uh,
1: indeed.
2: since his catalogue has been most widely studied in the West, uh, and specifically in the American Buddhological literature. Uh-huh. Uh, we completely dismiss the fact that uh, his catalogue wasn't entirely to the emperor's liking, and we're talking about the most Buddhist emperor who lived up to this point in Chinese history the Udi of the Southern Liang dynasty mm. and that the emperor and I was even going to quote a little bit from the book um, that uh, the emperor started commissioning uh, catalogs for uh, Chinese Tripitaka almost immediately uh, as the uh, Sun Yos catalog was um, published, of course presented to the emperor. emperor did not fully reject it but we talk about that um, here we are um, an emperor ordered another monk, Shi Seng Shao, to write a catalogue that would correct and rival Seng catalogue, okay? And then Shi Seng Shao failed. Of course, he could not rival Seng Yeo, but then a very famous court historian, Bao Chang, the one who gave us an example of the uh, of biographies of monks and biographies of nuns, mm. the one who wrote many, many outstanding Buddhist uh, historiographical text, but he was not the uh, favorite of the Sangha itself. Uh, he was kind of under the shadow of the emperor, although he was Seng uh, disciple. Uh, Bao Chang's catalog uh, must be actually considered by many um, characteristics superior to that of Seng Yo, yet his catalog did not survive. And I write in the book, uh, very, very ironic, how in this case the Sangha or Buddhist community Uh, put his vote, because they did not, after the collapse of the Southern Liang dynasty, they did not copy Bao Chang's catalog with the imperial uh, shadow on it, but they copied uh, Senyo's catalog with the uh, Supremacy of the Sangha shadow on it. And that's why the imperially sanctioned catalog from that time period uh, disappeared. Uh, And here we have a very interesting connection between the uh, Southern Liang dynasty and that new Sui dynasty, Yes, uh, I I kind of myself really like that parallel that Sengyou was probably the only monk in Chinese Buddhist history who got to burn Buddhist scriptures. Mm. All other times, it was the emperor who got to burn the Buddhist scriptures. Okay, so the founder of the Sui Dynasty, a very devout Buddhist uh, monarch, uh, Wen Di, he burned all the uh, fake or whatever um, fake isn't the right word false, uh, inauthentic, uh, bad, bad, bad scriptures, right? He got to do that, although he sponsored uh, so many other wonderful Buddhist things. And, of course, the reason why the Sui dynasty was such um, a tremendous um, period for uh, Buddhism is because, of course, um, the emperor of the Sui dynasty, well, first of all, he unified all of China, conquering the northern dynasties, and he shed lots of human blood. That was a scary thing to do. The entire country was wounded and bleeding, but second is that he usurped the throne, and according to the Confucian uh, philosophy and doctrine of transmission, his rule uh, could be and probably was questionable, however, if he declared himself a chakravartin, the protector of the Buddhist dharma, then he had a full ideological support for him becoming the emperor. He had to protect the dharma from persecution by the last uh, Northern dynasty and that he had to step in and be in charge of everything because according to the uh, Buddhist political philosophy, if, if I may, uh, the most important thing is to defend, uh, to defend uh, the Buddha law, the Dharma. Mm. And that's exactly what he did. So of course, uh, under his very short rule, we have four comprehensive Buddhist catalogs. Uh, we have lots of uh, other interesting developments. And that is why I had to write a whole chapter on that very uh, short-lived dynasty, but the one that gave a Buddhism impetus, uh, like maybe no other, maybe not even like the Southern Liang Dynasty with uh, the Emperor Uli. Sure. Did, did, I, did I did I answer your question? Is yes. Yes, yes.
1: No, you did. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So. Um, and then Chapter Five is the last of the four chapters in which you uh, right, chart right. the chronological development of. Chinese Buddhist bibliography, and this is where you bring us into the Tang Dynasty, uh, 618 right. to 907. Um, and, um, well, we can't discuss all the... I don't think we have time to discuss all the things that I sort of marked mm-hmm. to discuss, but uh, one thing I wanted to uh, point out is that you mentioned that during the Tang, there was a growth in the sutra section of the Tripitaka um, yes. while the vinaya was, uh, vinaya was relegated to a lower secondary status. And Absolutely in the sort of Mm -hmm. tripartite structure of the canon, it comes Mm -hmm. in second, whereas obviously in Mm -hmm. other Buddhist places that aren't within the Chinese uh, Mm -hmm. cultural sphere, um, Mm -hmm. it comes first. Um, So you mentioned this briefly in the uh, beginning of the interview, but I just wanted you to sort of comment on why this this happened in the Chinese context.
2: Okay, well, here, once again, I have to kind of... uh, the first one to walk on thin eyes. Yes. <laughs> this has not been brought to anyone's attention. This disproportionate uh, uh, reduction in the uh, size of the Vinaya, which actually did not happen in the Sui dynasty. In the Sui dynasty, in the catalog by Fei Chang Fang, which many American scholars um, consider to be not reliable, but the ratio between the Vinaya and other uh, sutra um, part of the um, canon is is actually still very, um, uh, what it should be, right? It's reasonable. And it is specifically during the Tang Dynasty that you see and I see, and everybody sees who gets the book and looks at the table. The shrinkage is almost unbelievable, so I'm going to find that... if I may, did, did sure. you get the numbers or, or no? Uh, okay, yes. Yeah. So here, here um, we are. Right.
1: See. Um. Right.
2: It's, it's right here. So I'm looking at the um, uh, comparison of canon registers, and so it's not all of the catalog uh, contents, but just the scriptures that were prescribed by the catalogers. Mm-hmm. And if for the Sui dynasty catalog of Hsien Chang Fang. You see the um, uh, ratio between Sutra and the Vinaya in the Mahayana section, 469 for the Sutra and uh, 31 for the Vinaya, but for the most famous Tang Dynasty catalogers, so it's already um, uh, disproportion, but still you can think, well, um, could it go up, could it go lower? And yes, it goes lower, because for Jishin you have 515 Sutra texts And only 25, so from the small amount of 31, even more Vinaya collections have been excluded. Mm -hmm. And um, um, the reduction uh, is uh, tremendous. Um, So the scriptures on the discipline are now taking less than 4% of the entire collection. Okay, here is is my... two cents on that. I would really like more people to participate. But this is based on my uh, earlier research and that is about how the Chinese Buddhist Sangha has always been legally and politically weak mm. uh, based on that uh, inner affairs of the Sangha, uh, especially during the Tang Dynasty. start earlier and I don't want um, to... This, this research is mentioned in the bibliography to this book that we discussed. Um, that especially under the Tang Dynasty uh, monks and nuns were judged by the criminal laws uh, of the Tang Dynasty. Uh, so the famous Tang Lushi applies completely, and then uh, further into the Song Dynasty, it became even worse. That is, transgressions of Buddhist monks and nuns were judged not by the Sangha itself, not by the seniors of the Sangha, mm-hmm. but by the imperial commissioners. And there was this very interesting point that monks and nuns have to be punished Harsher for violating their own principles, such as um, small theft, than people outside of the monastery, because people in the monastery are in the monastery, exempt from paying taxes, exempt from building bridges and canals, etc., etc., exactly because they cultivate morality. So a monk who is um, um, guilty of a small theft according to the imperial uh, logic, imperial law, and the um, dictatum from imperial officials has to be punished several times harsher than uh, somebody who is just a secular or lay Buddhist. And, of course, severe transgressions such as murder, so on and so forth, um, or um, political treason uh, were punished uh, with all severity. In other words, why deny became unimportant is because it was now the imperial vinaya, so to speak, the mm. imperial law that dealt with the uh, monastic behavior. And it started during the northern Dynasty. So, look, you were absolutely right when you asked me why would I uh, include, uh, no matter how briefly, uh, the description, no, no matter how ab- abbreviated or brief, is my description of the um, northern Dynasty catalogs, because several things happened there, um, even... Um, before the Tang Dynasty that went into the further development of the Chinese Buddhist canon, and that is one of them, that in some catalogs, Vinaya was uh, uh, totally done away with. Um, now, at the top of my mind, I don't... Um, let me quickly see uh, if I marked it um, The northern... Okay, let just... <laughs> hey, listeners, we'll have to wait. I think... Uh... I think the... Uh, so, the on, one of on, the. One, on, one, on, sorry, go on. I found it, I found it, okay. So, we're talking about the Wei Dynasty, mm-hmm. uh, provided no division for the Mahayana Vinaya literature, okay? Mm. And the uh, other form of Buddhism, which Chinese, of course, call Hinayana or small vehicle, right, uh, did not apply to Chinese monks anymore. They no longer practiced the other form of Buddhism. That was for monks outside of China. So, the form of Buddhism that. Uh, northern Chinese practiced under the northern dynasties, right, was all Mahayana, Mahayana through and through. And that specific, very important for that uh, part of the country, Wei, northern Wei dynasty, did not even include the Vinaya texts because they were absolutely useless since it was the uh, um, emperor-positioned supervisors who governed all the Sangha affairs. And that went into the tongue, and therefore the Vinaya was shrinking, shrinking, and then um, uh, we do have uh, a brilliant text by Yifa from the uh, University of the West uh, from, I think, six or seven years ago, um, mentioned in my book, where the latest uh, criminal codes of the Chinese Sangha are actually muddled on those criminal laws of the uh, Tang and Sui uh, Sorry, Tang and Sung dynasty.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So it, it became that way nice. around. And of course, if you go to, or if you go to Thailand, to this day, uh, the sanghas appoint their own head of the sangha. It is the uh, king who has to be responsible, who has to bow to the head of the sangha. Uh, China didn't have such privileges. The imperial power always squashed the prerogatives right. of the head of the sangha and instilled its own laws. That's why Vinaya had to had to go.
1: So the implication is that the Vinaya, the the uh, lack of interest in the Vinaya or development of Vinaya. In East Asia was not so much due to ideological or cultural reasons as much as it was due to simply practical reasons that it became that there was actually not much of a use for it because it wasn't the uh, it wasn't the governing law essentially.
2: Well look I would have to say there was ideological because if the there the senior monks gather on the uh, full moon on the new moon right and they examine behavior of the monks but if they uh, and, and if somebody is known to be guilty of this and this and the monk must do that and that but if in actuality there will be an imperial officer coming to make monks uh, pass their own Buddhist exams, right? Yeah. The variations of education exam, right? Uh, wh- what's the use of such Vinaya text? It, it would it would show such a discrepancy between how things were done in Buddhist countries versus how it is done uh, now in a Buddhist country called China. Yeah. So both. Both. Um, practicality and then potential potential questioning of why imperial law is being applied to clergy.
1: Right. Okay. Well um thank you for that. And in the um and uh, you also mentioned – don't, I don't think we had time to talk about it, but also just uh, for listeners who are interested in getting the book, I, uh, you also addressed in Chapter 5. And you already sort of mentioned this in the beginning is mm-hmm. uh, why catalogs uh, – you explained the decline of the production of catalogs and uh, right. the sort of loss of ca- uh, catalogs as the authority on the contours and boundaries
0: right, of the canon right. mm-hmm.
1: and the replacement of the, ca- of the catalog with the printed canon as – uh, the sort of authoritative voice on mm-hmm. what constitutes the right.
2: The printed editions became the way of um, um, organizing, controlling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, although the catalogs were still produced, but oftentimes they were based on the... Uh, they followed the printed editions. Mm.
0: Yeah.
1: So um, just um, w- skipping chapter <laughs> six, which is about... Uh, uh, hagiographical uh, portrayals of translators, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because which you did talk about in a bit, but I encourage readers to uh, mm-hmm. go uh, read the chapter for yourself. And skipping to chapter 7, which is your mm-hmm. uh, last full-length chapter, um, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to... Uh, I couldn't end the interview without mentioning this chapter, because this is where you do uh, turn to scriptural catalogs of the New Testament and uh, right. Hel- Hellenistic book catalogs in order to provide right, a narrative right. Uh, perspective, And of course, this is an integral component of the book because um, since, as you s- stated in the interview and the introduction to your book, that you want this book to be useful and uh, accessible to um, scholars outside of the study of uh, East Asia, China, East Asian Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So, um, so briefly uh, you find many similarities between catalog- cataloging of the new Testament and of the Chinese Buddhist canon and, um, and then you find many differences between these two pro- processes and the process by which Hellenistic book catalogs were produced. Right. So I was wondering if you could just sort of discuss in um, uh, sort of broad outline what some of these differences and similarities were
2: well, uh, since, uh, well, I do read uh, Greek and Latin on on par with Chinese, so I was able to look into these things uh, on my own with the help of our classes here at the, at the department, of course. But since this is not my main field of research, uh, since I by no means am an authority, mm. um, and I have to thank uh, University of Pennsylvania Professor Anne Matters, who is now, um, I don't know if she still is, but was the last time I checked, the chair of the Religious Studies Department, UPenn, so she sat with me, looked at everything, uh, made sure that the classical part uh, is correct. Uh, Greco Roman catalogs were very much like what we think of catalogs today. Their purpose was primarily pragmatical um, mm. how to find things, uh, how to know that this thing belongs to such thing. There were many forgeries, and some of these forgeries were actually welcomed. I think I'm quoting something. Here in the chapter, uh, showing that um, um, the uh, catalogs were sometimes um, uh, uh, there. There, there You go. So, um, Telemachus catalog, the one that I use, um, um, served as a guard against plagiarism and guaranteed a degree of accuracy. Um, and it's a, a level of concern about authenticity. Nonetheless, such a concern never reached the degree of urgency expressed on these matters by scriptural catalogers, um, uh, Chinese Buddhist or Christian. And consequences of accepting what uh, might be a textual forgery um, uh, was not was not so big. And. Uh, um, Anyway, I, I give an interesting example of where um, fake texts were accept, accepted uh, in big numbers just so that the libraries may compete with each other. Mm, so, yes, right. <laughs> and, and everybody knew about that and nobody worried about that. In other words, so they used catalogs to represent their national literature, to ease the finding of the text on the shelves of the library, There was never such a heavy-duty ideological significance attached to catalogs themselves, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Treatises themselves, yes. Philosophical positions, yes. But catalogs themselves were never a weapon of ideological war. Mm. Uh, And against this background, of course, Confucian part of Chinese national catalogs is different because Confucian part, the part that contains classics, is ideologically based. And, of course, the entirety of the Buddhist uh, book catalogs is ideologically based because they were written solely to prove the authenticity of Buddhist literature in China, the authenticity of the process of transmission, and must be accepted as such That is, we must first and foremost recognize this is a religious literature, yes, motivated by faith, and not by their desire to supply us us with historical <laughs> with historical schemes, mm. which we're so fond of, <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, uh, I'm sorry
2: no, no no, i was I was just laughing <laughs> yes. at how fond we are of uh, that belief that we can create um historical uh schemes, even though the author's purposes was something else,
1: yes. Well, I, I also found it uh, interesting that you mentioned that Jerome, um, a uh, sort of who uh, lived in the latter half of the 4th century and beginning uh-huh. of the 5th, um, like many Chinese Buddhist uh, catalogers, right. believed that there was some sort of original mm-hmm. canon. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned this earlier in the interview when the uh, Chinese monks would sort of look to the Western regions or to Central Asia, trying to find manuscripts of mm-hmm. some sort of, original.
2: Right, right, and and not, and not only the time period coinciding, but also something interesting. So, Jerome uh, is known for his belief that Hebrew language is the sacred language, language of God himself, and therefore he discarded many very reliable early Greek translations. And he put together Hebraica Veritas, um, selecting only those things which he considered to be, right, coming directly uh, from God through the use of the language of God, and therefore later and that became, of course, known as Vulgate. But later, uh, people had to put together Duterte Canon, right? Including those good translations that were earlier, possibly even more reliable. Yet nobody's looking at the second canon or Duterte Canon um, as, uh, as the primary text for uh, Christianity. And everybody, of course, uh, is basing, uh, every nation on earth is basing their version of the Bible on the, uh, um, yes, collection and selection of of Jerome, and something similar happened with the choices made by Signeault. Some of the older translations that were marked by him as anonymous, and if it's anonymous, we don't know. Is it a true transmission? Is it a fake transmission? So most of the anonymous, very reliable, possibly, or not so reliable, translations were squeezed out of the Chinese canon and disappeared forever. So that is that is another interesting parallel that I wanted to bring in, uh, and, and by the way, I compare the Christian canon to the Buddhist, so that both sides can benefit, right? So yes. that Christians can can talk about our canon and see similarities and see differences, but also since the Christian canon studied so so well for nearly three hundred years, there were a variety of approaches, yeah, right. such a blooming um, uh, linguistic, historical, critical tradition it is to this day that certain things uh, that are clearly marked in the Christian tradition, I can now take and bring to my study of the Chinese Buddhist canon and say, hey, but Sing dropped that Duterte canon. He completely uh, helped the uh, elimination, <laughs> the yes. extermination of, the, of many, many uh, anonymous translations, although they could be just as reliable or more reliable than the ones ascribed to the early um, translators whom, whom he trusted. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we've taken a lot of your time, but as a final question, I wanted to ask if there's something that you're working on at the, at the moment.
2: OK. Well, um, you may actually invite me again uh, because um, my book called or titled Buddhist Based Universities in the United States Searching for a New Model for Higher Education is coming in April. I hope oh, wow. April uh, or May the latest. From uh, Lexington Books, which is a religious studies uh, arm of uh, um, a Roman and Littlefield, mm-hmm. a very prestigious publisher, and in that book, I wanted somehow I like to look at things that are not being looked at. Mm. I'm looking at four Buddhist-based universities in the United States: Naropa University, University of the West, Dharma Real Buddhist University, and Soka University of America. Uh, tell their history, uh, talk about their programs, and most importantly, look at their Buddhist-based pedagogy, which they uh, apply to teaching uh, professional fields, liberal arts. Uh, You can take anything you want. You can take computer science from U.S., or you can take, um, I don't know, environmental studies at Naropa, but it will all be Buddhist-based. So that's another Buddhist book. Yes.
1: Wow, that sounds really interesting, and quite a ways away, uh, both geographically and temporally, from a, a sort of early Chinese Buddhist bibliography. But
2: <laughs> no, no. Let me let me provide the breach for your listeners. And oh, okay. You,
1: no, I apologize. I apologize then, but go on.
2: Because because starting from the Sui dynasty, those catalogs would have a particular section of prescribed literature, so to speak, which will be almost like a curriculum
0: uh-huh.
2: the standard text. Uh-huh. And I started looking at standard text at various Buddhist universities. And just from there, I took a fast bullet train like in Japan yeah. or maybe like what we're going to have in California. And I arrived in modern day Buddhist education. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, I, I, I stand corrected then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but look uh, very quickly. I know. I know. We have to um, uh, end it here. No. But I continue my study of catalogs because since I've done so much and can offer so much uh, assistance, help, information. Um, in April, in Brigham Young University in Utah, there will be the third international conference on the Chinese Buddhist Canon, oh. Uh, oh, specifically yeah. dedicated to modern phase of the Chinese Buddhist Canon, and I have a, I'm invited to present, and I have a paper there titled, Helping Canons Talk to Each Other. Huh. And I'm going to talk about how uh, Chinese Tripitaka uh, can be made, a, what I call a household name, um, and uh, why I choose Tripitaka instead of da Zang Jing. Yes. <laughs> that is the more widely used uh, term for the uh, a Chinese Buddhist canon uh, today. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make comparisons to Confucian collection of classics, to, once again, Christian collections, even to the... Uh, Sikhism um, favored, or whatever, uh, no, her favorite, uh, scratch that, right, (laughs) to the um, canon of Sikhism known as the Guru Granth Sahib, uh, literally providing a seat for the Chinese Buddhist canon at the table where all other canons of the world are already sitting and talking to each other, but the Tad Zhang Jing, or the Chinese um, Great Collection of Scriptures, or the Chinese Tripitaka, um, um, uh, woefully has been absent from that feast of ideas Yes. well we'll
1: look forward to, uh, for, uh, to your new book and hopefully um, some sort of publication arising from the uh, conference in April right. Um, right. so I suppose that's it for today but I wanted to thank you for speaking with me and also I wanted to thank our listeners for tuning in that's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies see you next time